2000. I want you to look at how pregnancy is spoken of as if it is a health crisis. It's much harder to see what's evil about this one. You have to read a couple of paragraphs into the text. But I want you to look at it and, and get into the ethos of it. Think that you're a rich person that reads the New York Times, okay? And then finally, I have an article that I read from this morning. And uh, it's quite extensive. I've given it to Lucas and several of you. If any of you want to take this article and read it, it goes more deeply into the whole foreign policy angle of America and the, and the reproduction of the poor. Now, tonight we have the privilege of having two men who, uh, when Rob and David and I and the elders were talking about having a pro-life Sunday, which we really haven't been in the habit of doing self-consciously, um, immediately the idea came to us of having two men speak to us and bring us God's Word. Both of these men have been a great inspiration to me and to the other pastors and elders because their consciences have been... Uh, um, oh, what would I say, bound by the Word of God in their professions. It's been obvious to those of us who have known them and watched them. One, Adam Spady has left already and is up in Indy now, uh, going into the medical profession. The other is Brian, who has already really left us but agreed to stick around one more year so I wouldn't cry. And <laughs> So Brian is about to leave at the end of this month if you read his email. Brian and Nicole and Noel, and when Brian first came to this church, and I heard that he was going into the legal profession, I began to tremble for him, thinking of the cost that would be required. And so they were at our house for lunch, and I remember pushing him on the issue of medical ethics to see what was going on. And there wasn't much going on in his eyes, but I looked to his, his left, and there was his wife, and without saying a word, her head was nodding. And I knew Brian was in good hands. And so often it is our wives and our mothers who teach us. And so I honor both of you tonight. I tell you that you have been a great encouragement to us. And so tonight everybody will have the chance to be encouraged by you, not just me. And it's with real gratitude on behalf of the elders and pastors that I welcome you to the pulpit. So come feed us from the Word of God. Good evening. This month, my wife Nicole and I mark our fourth anniversary of attending and being a part of this church. It's in this church that I came to saving faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and have been discipled. Nicole and I started attending Church of the Good Shepherd midway through my second year of law school. And after law school, I went to work for a judge on the Indiana Court of Appeals. And I'm in the third and final year of that work. And as Tim mentioned, I'll be moving to Indianapolis with my family in early February. And six months after that, I'll start a new job with a law firm in Indianapolis. I'm going to give the first half of the sermon tonight. And since I'm going first, I get to say 
and a much abler man than I will finish the second half. My job tonight is to give you some example of how God works through a Christian in opposing the shedding of innocent blood. And if you would, please open your Bibles with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 1. The book of Isaiah, chapter 1, beginning with verse 10. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this of you? This trembling of my courts. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would use your word to strengthen us. Use it to begin to wash us clean from the blood that is on our hands. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all those hearts here tonight be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. As Tim mentioned, Nicole and I are moving up to Indianapolis. And as part of this move, I have a document here with me tonight. Can any of you tell me what this is? Can you see I'll give you a hint. You need it to initiate the purchase of a home. It's not a will, Taylor. It's called a purchase agreement. Okay? It's a contract. One of the first things every first-year law student learns is how to form basic agreements. And there are three types. We have written agreements. We have oral agreements. And we have agreements where we manifest that we accept the offer just by course of conduct. We don't have to say a word. We don't have to sign an agreement. We just show that we agree by doing absolutely nothing. Here's the example, the first example, the written contract. Nicole and I are offering to buy this home for such and such price, and we flip to the back 
Anyway, John and Monica Ferguson indicated their assent by signing the agreement. Okay? That's the first kind. The second kind is the oral contract. And now I want to talk about the third kind of contract, the contract where you manifest assent by course of conduct. And I have a hypothetical tonight, so please listen up to this hypothetical, and I want someone in the church tonight to give me an answer to this question. This is just like law school. This is what we do, especially during our first year. We sit and we answer hypotheticals, and we're prodded by professors who Socratically give us questions and expect answers from us. All right, here's the hypothetical, and I'll use Pastor Hooper as an example. He gave a sermon a few months ago on doing all things for the sake of the gospel. And he mentioned an illustration from his own life, an activity that he doesn't necessarily care to do. But he'll perform this task so that he doesn't scandalize his neighbors. Does anyone remember what it is? Who said that? Okay, Eric Wilson. All right. He mows the lawn. All right, let's pretend the president of Bloomington Lawn Care Company was sitting in the back pew that Sunday morning. The next Saturday, the president of Bloomington Lawn Care Company shows up on Rob's doorstep and pulls into the driveway, and Rob is sitting in his lawn chair, and he's drinking lemonade. He's enjoying a nice Saturday morning. The lawn care guy gets out of the van, and he draws up an invoice that says, mowing, weeding, price $50. He walks up to Rob, Rob's sitting in his lawn chair, and he drops the invoice in Rob's lap. And Rob just looks up at him. He takes a sip of his lemonade, doesn't say a word, doesn't nod, doesn't sign the invoice. The guy goes back to his van gets out his lawnmower, mows the lawn, does the weeding, and then he expects $50 from Rob. Here's my question. Is that an enforceable agreement? And is, the mic, is someone ready to run the mic? Someone raise your hand and give us the answer, please. Come on, Elder Canfield. Doubt this is the answer you're looking for, but I would say it depends, because by dropping that law contract, professors hate when law students say that. I'll just put that out there. Go ahead. My reason is this: the the guy with the lawn service could not know if Rob was even capable of of reading a contract. He might have had dyslexia. He might have been blind, for that matter. Okay, but he doesn't. The facts are that Rob isn't dyslexic and he's not blind. Now answer. What's the, what's the response? Then I would say yes. Okay, you're right. That's an enforceable agreement, and everyone learns that in first-year contracts law. He could take Rob Hooper to court and get his $50. All right, so think about that tonight. Course of conduct. And as you think about that, I want you to think about three things. Our silence, our passivity, our inaction when it comes to speaking out against the shedding of innocent blood is assent. It's acceptance of the offer made by the evil one. So think about that. If you've been silent, if you've been passive, if you've been inactive 
when it comes to the shedding of innocent blood, you're in agreement in God's eyes. And if you don't believe me, let's open up to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 33. The book of Ezekiel, chapter 33. Verse 1. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people and say to them, If I bring a sword upon a land, and the people of the land take one man from among them and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows on the trumpet and warns the people, Then he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning and a sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet but did not take warning. His blood will be on himself. But had he taken warning, he would have delivered his life. All right, now the burden is being put on the watchman. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet and the people are not warned, and a sword comes and takes a person from them, he is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood I will require from the watchman's hand. Okay, here's God telling us that if we're silent in the day of evil, and if we're silent when we see wickedness committed, and we see people being taken away in their iniquity, we will share blame in that. And we will share responsibility for that. So you don't have to sign your name at the bottom of Planned Parenthood's vision statement saying that you agree with reproductive autonomy and choice and a constitutional right to an abortion. And you don't even have to say, I agree, I'm I'm fully in favor of a woman's right to choose. You don't have to say any of that. Just by your course of conduct, you've created an agreement. You've shown you agree. So we've seen one thing. I think everyone in this room has blood on their hands, including myself. And we need to ask ourselves the second question. Okay, we've been silent. We we haven't said anything. We've not done the things we should have done. We've been passive. We've been wimpy. We've been wimpy men, as Tim was getting us to think about today. Why? Why do we choose to walk with blood on our hands? First of all, as Adam is going to get into a little better than I can, it's just plain embarrassing to speak up for unborn children because everyone else who advocates abortion and infanticide and in euthanasia, they all have PhDs, they're all articulate, and they all sound like they know what they're talking about. It's only the bore, it's only the zealot, it's only the simpleton who would speak out in favor of unborn children. It's just plain embarrassing. Our judges, our professors, our pundits are so smugly certain that abortion is a constitutional right. And not only that, oh, it's good public policy. How can you be so dense not to see that? Okay, so we have embarrassment. We have the prospect of low grades the threat of job loss for speaking out for the unborn. But I think there's a more 
fundamental reason. And it gets at the heart of all the excuses we come up with when we don't do anything, when we are silent, when we're passive, when we're inactive. I don't think we believe in God. I don't think we believe that his character, that his promises, that his warnings have any direct effect on our lives when it comes to the sanctity of life. The danger of abject unbelief really hit me like a freight train this week. I found out at about, about eight days ago that Planned Parenthood was sponsoring a pro-Row rally in the Indiana State House on the 30th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Okay, they were going to celebrate reproductive autonomy. They were going to celebrate all the career advances women have been able to make because they can now legally kill their unborn children. That's the celebration. It was going to go on in the, in the Capitol. The seat of power, seat of political and governmental power in Indiana. Now, when you go to the State House, you'll notice on the first floor there's a governor's office. The attorney general's just down the hall. Go up one more floor, you have the General Assembly, you have the House of Representatives, you have the Senate. And directly to the north, you have the Supreme Court hearing room and all the Supreme Court justices in Indiana. Okay, they're on the next floor up. Go up one more floor and you have eight judges on the Indiana Court of Appeals in various administrative offices. Okay, so the locus of governmental power in Indiana is situated there and Planned Parenthood is going to use this as a forum to celebrate the killing, the legal killing of unborn children. The fact that they would do it at all disgusted me. And if you're not disgusted by it, you don't even have to look at pictures. Although that's, like Tim said, a picture speaks a thousand words. Just open up the, the volume for the 2000 term Supreme Court reporter and open up to a case called Stenberg versus Carhartt and you'll see grisly descriptions of abortion. And you would think that's in the dissenting opinion, right? They're trying to get us to, the dissent's trying to shock us into seeing really what the majority is advocating. No, it's in the majority opinion. And they quote at length the testimony of an, a baby killer who talks about, well, a certain method of abortion requires me to use an instrument to go in and grab a baby, okay? And I got to get traction on the mother's cervix so that I can disarticulate the baby. Okay, that's, that's the word they use, disarticulate the baby. Does anyone know what that means? It means tearing a baby limb from limb. And even in the majority opinion, there's a quote. That they worry about this. They worry about free-floating heads left in the wombs of their mothers. And the reason why there's such a health concern is because they want to advocate a different kind of abortion, an abortion where the baby killer goes in, punctures the skull, and they describe this too in the majority opinion. It's ruthless. It's ruthless. They, they puncture the skull and they suck the... No, they say they drain the intracranial fluid from the skull, which creates a dead but intact fetus. 
the dead and intact baby, which can be delivered so that no messy parts are left behind to infect the mother. And this is all going to go on where the governor, the legislature, and the courts of this state sit. The celebration of Roe v. Wade. These are the magistrates God entrusted to protect the weak from the evil and to bring wrath on Planned Parenthood and to bring wrath on abortion doctors. Doctor, see, see how I slip into it? Baby killers. Baby killers. Okay, so I'm disgusted. I know, the gov- I know Governor O'Bannon isn't going to waltz down to the platform and, and decry the shedding of innocent blood. He's got a, a $750 million budget shortfall to worry about. He's not going to worry about babies. So I purposed in my heart to say something to the crowd that day, which would soon gather to advocate the killing of unborn children. And once I purposed in my heart to say something, a new spiritual battle began, and one I I had to face. In Ephesians 6.12, God reveals who our real enemy combatants are. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. And how could it be anything but this, as Tim was describing this morning, this systemic lie? And how is it that people always line up on the same sides of these grisly issues. Harry Blackman is a perfect example. Oh, he cared about civil liberties. And he, he wrote the opinion granting women the right to kill their unborn children, but it was delusional for anyone to think that the Constitution would allow the death penalty. And he's logical, Okay, this past Wednesday, I'm driving up to the State House. I know I'm going to look like a fool in front of the world, or at least the world as it was contained in the State House at the time. The rally was set to begin at 11 o'clock, and it was going to last two hours. Now, I didn't want to go down there right at 11 because I didn't want anyone to accuse me of loafing on the job and using my position to uh, make public policy or whatever dumb excuse they would come up with to, to clamp me down. But around 10 o'clock, I went and I scouted out how they were going to set up their little rally for Roe v. Wade. And it's similar to this. We have a, there was a platform. There was a podium with a microphone for a speaker. And they had about 15 rows of seats going back and I knew I picked out my spot I would go at the back and I would directly face the speaker when I when I was about to speak I almost wish someone would have been monitoring all the physiological changes that were taking place in my body 
that last hour before I went down. Nicole, first of all, I love you for getting up with me that morning and eating breakfast with me. For She made my lunch. She put little notes in it to give me encouragement, saying, cast your anxieties on the Lord. There's another little note saying, you're in my thoughts and my, in my prayers. But I didn't see that until afterward. Because... <laughs> There was no way I was going to be able to eat anything. I didn't eat till I got home. So I got my stomach in turmoil. My heart rate speeds up and slows down, alternating between the opinion I'm trying to draft and thinking about what's going on downstairs. And then this saliva starts building up in my mouth. And it's really acidic. And I swallow it, and it just makes my stomach feel even worse than it did before. And I'm trying to talk to my coworker, not about this at that point, just about a case we're working on. And my voice was cracked. I was quiet. I could talk like this. I couldn't talk louder. <laughs> and as I'm fearing all of what's going on downstairs and what will go on, I thought, who are these uncircumcised Philistines? They're a bunch of women, for one. They're all women speakers. They're all women setting the thing up. There, there weren't any men down there. And even when I went down there, no man opposed me. It's just women. So I thought, who are these uncircumcised Philistines? And I thought, women. And they're uncircumcised, which is really odd. (laughs) Then Satan attacked me again. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even to death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. On Wednesday, I was told that God wouldn't save a sinner like me. If God wouldn't save a sinner like me, Why would I bother going down to a little rally and make a fool out of myself? If God wouldn't be down there for me, to go before me, to lift me up, it would be pointless for me to go down there. I would just be buying trouble. These are the things Satan is telling me. He's accusing me. And it's logical. It's reasonable. If there's no God before whose judgment seat you will one day stand, 
there's no reason to do this silly protesting and going down to Planned Parenthood or circling the courthouse with gap signs. There's no reason to protest abortion. There's no reason to go down there and shame not only those who are calling and advocating the killing of unborn children, but shame all the leaders who wouldn't go down there and do it themselves, people we've entrusted with power. More importantly, people that God has appointed, he set those people up for this very person purpose and they're neglecting their duties. So I had to decide if the last three or four years of my Christian walk was just a charade. Was I a Christian or had I just been playing one for the last three or four years? Well, thank God, I decided there was a God and I loved him. And there's no hope for me without him. None. So I prayed that God would shut the mouth of the accuser and soon thereafter God answered my prayer. And then other fears set in. Satan came with the physical types of fears. I have a wife. I have a 20-month-old daughter. I have a child on the way. What if I lose my job? What if my boss is angry? We're trying to buy a house. I've heard that banks don't like to loan money to jobless men. What if I go down there and I'm arrested by the Capitol Police and they throw me in jail for disturbing the peace? And then I thought about that awful scene in the bonfire of the vanities when the Wall Street broker in his suit gets thrown in the jail with the rest of the uh, criminals, the fun interactions he has with them. Jesus promises in everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake shall receive many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. So I doubled over onto my desk. My desk is in a back corner of the office now. I put my forehead all these fears are setting in. I put my forehead down like this and I just pray my guts out that God would give me courage, that he'd give me strength, that he would protect me. I stayed like that for about a minute and as soon as my forehead came came off the fake veneer on my desk, the phone rang. It wasn't God. But it was one of his saints, Adam Spady. I talked to Adam about what I was planning to do a few days earlier. So he calls me about 30 minutes before I'm going down, and he wants to pray for me and pray with me. What an encouragement. I knew that God was with me. Okay, I'm I'm down to about a few minutes to go. With cracked and quiet voice, I asked my Catholic pro-life coworker if he'll go down there and stand with me. And he said, we talked about it earlier when I first decided I was going to go down there. And he was on board with me then. And when I asked him that day, he said he would, and then he started making me reconsider. 
Would our boss be angry? Would we lose our jobs? And then he came up with this really wimpy excuse that I'm glad I didn't think of. This is like a man peeing his pants excuse. Here's the excuse. Well, there's, there's not a huge crowd if we go down there. We're just going to draw attention to the abortion rally if we go down there and protest. No one's down there. No one's going to watch. No one's going to care until we draw attention to it. And the first thing that came to my mind, and I told him this, I said, God hates abortion. It's an abomination. And I said, we have to decide if we fear men or we fear God. Men can fire us and they can kill our bodies. They can throw us in unpleasant jails. But God can do so much more horrible things through his righteous judgment on us. He can destroy both body and soul in hell for eternity. Now what's reasonable there? What's the reasonable choice there? So I tell him that and he shrugs his shoulders. He's like, yeah, yeah I guess that's right. So he agrees to go down with me. Okay, my office is on the top floor of the state house. I gotta go down two flights of stairs. And as I'm going down, I feel like I just want to melt inside of myself. I just want to collapse into a little ball and just disappear and go to sleep somewhere. But then I was comforted with this thought. All the cloud of witnesses that surrounded me. Turn with me, please, to the book of Hebrews. Chapter 11, starting with verse 37. Hebrews 11, verse 37. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37. We'll read past uh, past the beginning of chapter 12. Describing the lives of the great men and women of faith, Scripture says, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. And here is one of my most favorite lines in all of Scripture. Men of whom the world was not worthy. What a commendation by the Holy Spirit. Men of whom the world was not worthy. Would the Holy Spirit say that about anyone in this church tonight? Would a person say say that about anyone in this church tonight? Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground, and all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, 
Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. When we finally arrive at the bottom, where everyone is seated and listening to a pro-abortion speaker, I noticed there were, I'm guessing, around 100 people present. And it's a similar configuration to this, about the same width of the rows, There's a middle aisle, and there are people standing off to the sides. I noticed a professional-looking photographer. I noticed a cameraman who was videotaping the conference. And then time slowed down. I'm not an athlete, obviously. But I've, I've read interviews of elite baseball hitters who talk about when the pitch is thrown and the ball is released, they can see the stitches on the ball. And however the stitches of the ball are coming at them, they can discern if it's a slider, a curveball, a fastball, and they can adjust their stance accordingly. This all happens within a fraction of a second to the normal observer, but to them it slows way down. This is what happened to me. But I, when I got down there, I knew that God was with me. Jehovah Sabaoth. Is Jay Sparks here tonight? (laughs) Went to the bathroom. What about Kyle or Alex Bristol? Stephen Dodrell? Justin Clampett? Yeah. In fifth and sixth grade Sunday school, we've been studying the Hebrew names for God. And one of them is Jehovah Sabaoth. Does anyone here know what that means? Yes. The Lord of hosts. God was down there with a Lord of hosts. Armies and armies of angels to do his bidding to protect me, to hold me up. So just as I stepped to the middle of the aisle, about a few feet behind the last row, I was behind everyone. And there was someone speaking up there. So as I'm approaching, I know that God is there because the, the speaker stopped speaking. She ended her speech. And the moderator is getting back up onto the stage, and she's walking to the podium, and she's just about to open her mouth. So then I yelled, God hates the shedding of innocent blood. Repent of this wickedness and put your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You should all be ashamed of yourselves. No men stood up to oppose me. The cops didn't oppose me. The men there didn't oppose me. A woman opposed me. There was a woman, burly-looking woman, holding a sign that said, every child should be a wanted child. And she, she started saying something to me and Another woman was, she was shorter than me, and she just was like trying to soothe me and have me pray in the corner and not 
to shut up. <clears throat> By God's grace, on that day I cleaned my hands from blood. Brothers and sisters, if you've been silent when it comes to the shedding of innocent blood, then you're in assent with the shedding of innocent blood. You're in agreement with it. If you've been silent when it comes to abortion, infanticide, euthanasia, you're in agreement with it. And it doesn't have to be, you don't have to protest. But in, these, in your life situations, these things come up. They have to. They do. I know they do. They, they keep coming up in our lives. And I'm, you're no different than I am. It's not because I'm involved in the law. Do you not believe God's warnings or his promises? Do you not believe his character? Do you not believe that he's the Lord of hosts? And if he says that he's going to be with you, he'll be with you. He'll be there for you. Do you not believe that each that each of us one day will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for every idle word we've spoken and every warning we've left unspoken. If you believe these things, how is it manifested in your life? How is it shown? How have you cleaned your hands? Do you fear God or do you fear man? I have to read one thing. This is, this is from Harry Blackman. This is his obituary. Okay, We think that he's a cold intellectual judge. No, he, he went to church. Okay, He was a Christian. Blackman established himself as a passionate supporter of civil rights. He is best known for his majority opinion in Roe v. Wade, upholding the constitutional right of a woman to decide whether to have an abortion. Okay, this is from United Methodist News Service. They have their own publication source. Skipping down, Blackman joined Metropolitan Memorial United Methodist Church in Washington soon after going to the Capitol. He frequently read scriptures at Sunday morning service. Senior Pastor Bill Lawrence said Blackman always prepared a contextual statement to precede the reading of the text. Quote, he was active in fellowship life of the church, Lawrence said. He would greet people during coffee hour on Sunday morning. His life was an expression of his faith. Praise for Blackman's serious involvement at Metropolitan was echoed by the Reverend William Holmes, who retired in 1998 after 24 years as senior pastor of the church. Here's what Reverend Holmes says. He had a great love for the scripture and was really a scholar of the biblical literature. He also had a great love for the United Methodist Church as a denomination. Do we see any parallels in our lives? So think about those verses in Isaiah chapter 1 where God tells us all the things that he doesn't take pleasure in as long as we're not defending life. He doesn't take pleasure in our prayers. He doesn't take pleasure in our Advent seasons. He doesn't take pleasure in our Holy Weeks. He doesn't take pleasure in our Friday morning prayer. He doesn't take pleasure in our Wednesday morning men's group. He doesn't take pleasure in our praise and worship band unless 
we reprove the ruthless, unless we defend the orphan, unless we plead for the widow. When we do those things, when we seek justice, when we do good, he takes pleasure in all of that other activity. So let me encourage you with this. The Lord is there. He'll never leave you and he'll never forsake you. Once you purpose in your heart to stand against the shedding of innocent blood, however you do it. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we repent in dust and ashes for our assent, our agreement in the shedding of innocent blood. Father, help us bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Help us, Heavenly Father, help us learn to do good. Teach us to do good, we pray. Help us reprove the ruthless. Help us defend the orphan. Help us plead for the widow. Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you, Counselor. You know, I I always knew that Brian loved me, but now I'm absolutely convinced of it because I'm about a hundred times stronger to do what God's given me to do tonight because of that sermon. Thank you, Brian. And this is Bailey. I'm also a little stronger because you're here. I want to thank you for coming. And when you get your knees replaced and you're recovering, I don't want you to stop going to church because... It, uh, it helps make men like me stronger in its obedience to God. As many of you know, my name is Adam Spady, and Church of the Good Shepherd was my church home for over five years. Until last May when my wife Dawn, my daughter Cynthia, who's in the nursery, and I moved to Indianapolis so that I could finish medical school. Am I wearing it wrong? We really hated to leave this church because we love it dearly, so much so that yesterday when I was in Fritch Lake, Indiana for a retreat, I happened to see a copy of the Bloomington Herald Times sitting there on the breakfast table, and immediately I kind of welled up with nostalgia, and I couldn't wait to get back here to see you guys this evening. So it's a privilege to be here, and I thank you for inviting me kindly to preach my first sermon. What joy it gives me to bring the Word of God to a people so eager to learn from that word. Tonight I intend to share some scriptural lessons with you concerning the sanctity of human life that I have learned as a Christian medical student. Now, of course, I didn't learn them at the medical school, and sadly I didn't even learn them from Christian doctors. Of the Christian doctors I know, very few will address the sanctity of life with medical students unless directly asked to do so, and even fewer address it well. No, I learned these lessons here from you, from this church. And I really pray that you'll continue to build on the strong tradition of pro-life teaching that you've established. You, church, are the salt of the earth. And the people like Brian Bailey and I need you as we prepare for our lives as Christian witnesses and as professionals. 
And I want you to realize that our work as legal and medical professionals doesn't give us a special calling to defend the innocent. Our professions simply give us a lot of practice at trying to fulfill this calling. By the end of this evening, I hope to convince you that every Christian is called to honor and defend life. We'll begin our study by looking at this question of to whom the battle belongs. We will then conclude with several scriptural guidelines for fighting the battle. And keep in mind, if you have any questions or comments, I'll be here for a while after the service. Let's bow in prayer. Father, I thank you for blessing me with this privilege of proclaiming your truth. I pray that my words and the thoughts of all of our hearts will be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and Redeemer, abide with us tonight and create in us hearts and minds that joyfully submit to your word with respect to our duties as Christians and the value of every human life. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. So to whom does the battle belong? Well, Brian answered it pretty well, but I'm going to continue that thought. You know, when I first became a Christian, I didn't see the relevance of sermons like these to my life. After all, I didn't know any abortion activists, and I wasn't going to get anybody pregnant, right? So what did it have to do with me? You know, even after a powerful exhortation like the one Brian just gave, some of you might think, well, I'm pro-life, and I understand why doctors and lawyers need to fight this battle, but God's calling for my life is different. I'm not that watchman mentioned in Ezekiel 33. Of course, even Christian doctors and judges will try to deny their position as watchmen as well. I once heard a Christian doctor admit how, that he loved being an outpatient internal medicine because that way he never had to hit the hard issues of abortion and euthanasia. Others of you might say, well, yeah, I think it's important for each person to develop their own personal position, but I can't oppose my morals upon others. Have any of you heard that? Have you heard that, Rita, before? What do you think of that? Do you buy it? Well, we're going we're gonna to look at that, the, this idea that we can't, tell other people what moral stance they should take. One of my favorite lines is the spiritual one. Well, I'll have to pray about this and see where God leads me on this issue. That, that's the spiritual approach. Well, this may sound crazy, folks, but you don't have to pray about it. Okay, You don't have to pray about it. Yes, you should ask God to guide you as you defend innocent life and honor life, but he's already answered whether or not you should defend it at all. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 24, verse 11. This is Proverbs chapter 24, verse 11. Deliver those who are drawn toward death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, surely we did not know this, does not he who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? Now, we could look at many other verses tonight, but do we really need to? Because I have so much to share, I won't stop to exposit this passage. Nevertheless, even a cursory reading of this verse should adequately demonstrate that every follower of Jesus Christ must honor and defend life. Look again at your Bibles. I hope you still have it open. Read the verse to yourself. And ask the Lord to impress upon your heart the significance of this passage. 
See, if you don't commit yourself to living by the Scriptures now, what will you do when you're challenged to exemplify a Christian view of life? Suppose your husband, he has a stroke and is confused. The doctors tell you that while he's still very much alive, he has no quality of life and really nothing should be done to prolong his life. What would you say? Well, I can tell you what Rita Cuffey did. She chose life. Grace. Well, is, Grace, is Grace here? No, Grace isn't here. Let's say Lydia. What will you do down the road when you go, up for a, uh, go for a pregnancy checkup and the doctor tells you you need to have a blood test to look for Down syndrome? Now, will it change your decision to have the baby if the test is positive or not? If not, then why take the test? But see, they push that. They push it really heavily. If you say no, you'll have a huge argument on your hand. Okay? What if your wife goes into preterm labor at 23 weeks and the doctors tell you there's no sense in trying to save the baby? What will you do then? I think Annie's here. I think I saw her somewhere. Annie, you're about to finish nursing school. What about those doctors that tell you the most compassionate thing you can do is pull the plug? How will you respond? Lawrence, what happens if an elder at your evangelical church tells you that abortion is just another means toward good stewardship. That actually happened to someone in this room here, not at this church, but it it, it happened. An elder in an evangelical church said abortion is just a means to good stewardship. Aaron, say you're at work and you're managing the line and you overhear a couple guys talking about uh, getting a girl pregnant and, and praying for her to have an abortion. Will you decide to call them to repentance? and share the hope that is in Jesus Christ with them? Or Travis, here's, here's a tough question. What will you do when your future wife wants to have babies, but everyone in her family tells her she should put her career first? Will you honor life, or will you cave under the pressure, consciously or subconsciously, praying that God will close your wife's womb, and then virtually guaranteeing that he will answer that prayer by giving her a tiny little pill every morning? You see, even your reaction to this kind of scenario hinges upon how you value each human life, which is created by God in his image at its appointed time. What will you do? You know, I'm told reality-based TV shows are all the rage right now. How many Survivor fans do we have here? Or one of the spinoffs? Let's see. Come on. I know more people than that. Let's see some hands. Okay, well, these questions that I pose to you are reality-based questions. They're going to come up in your life. At some point, you will face them. So whether you're in a field like mine and Brian's or not, this battle belongs to you. Your role in the battle can take many forms, but zeal for the battle is not optional. You don't have to be a Planned Parenthood picketer like I have been. There are infinite other ways you can stand for life. But zeal for God's truth zeal for justice, and zeal for life. You have to have these. It's part of being a Christian. If you don't have that zeal, ask God to give it to you. He will. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love rejoices in the truth. And I ask you, do you rejoice in the truth? Genesis 9.6 states, Whosoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Do you rejoice in Genesis 9-6? If you don't rejoice that you're made in the image of God, what do you rejoice in? 
What more do you want? You know, I'm, I'm currently in my third year or third week of a psychiatry rotation at Wishard Hospital. And let me tell you, brothers and sisters, if you learn to rejoice in being created in God's image, you will know more than 99% of the psychiatrists and psychologists in America. They ramble on and on about self-esteem, but in reality, they have no idea what makes a man special. But you have the word of God. You know. What does it say? It says we're special because we're made in the image of God. He didn't send his son to die for, you know, the Indiana Cardinal or the, uh, the white-tailed deer. He sent his son to die for you. That's what makes us special. And we should what? We should rejoice. And if you do rejoice, can anyone tell by your actions? Think about this. Bob, sitting right here. What gives Bob that goofy grin and that joy that we all love? Is it because he has so much fulfillment from his career? Is it because his wheelchair is just so comfortable he can't stand it and he's just bubbling over? Clearly not. In fact, it's not even because he just spent $200 on new opera CDs. <laughs> Bob's joy comes from the fact that even as he sits here and his muscles spasm beyond his control, he knows that he was made in the image of God and that God loves him. That's what gives Bob his joy. He rejoices in the truth. Learn from this man because having him in this aisle every week sums up everything I'm trying to tell you tonight. Brothers and sisters, I pray that you'll rejoice in the truth. Some may argue, well, abortion, euthanasia, cloning, aren't those political issues? Isn't the real work of the church loving Jesus and spreading the gospel? Because after all, no one's going to change until they come to know Jesus. Well, there's a little bit of truth in that. But let me ask you this. How can someone understand their need to be reconciled to God if they don't know they were created in his image and then fell? How can someone come to love God if they don't know that he's just a lover of the weak and oppressed? You see, if God loves the unborn, if God loves the handicapped, if God loves the sick and the old, we can't turn our backs on these people and then go around telling people they should love God. This truth is not just relevant to the gospel. This truth is central to the gospel. You have to know who man is and you have to know who God is. No servant is greater than his master. And if God laid down his life to save yours when you were dead in your sins, you better believe he expects you to lay down your life for others. If you love God, if you rejoice in the truth, if you love justice, if you value life, then clearly this battle belongs to you. Once you've made a decision to join the battle to defend the innocent and oppressed, how do you go about it? Well, for the remainder of our time, I would like to share some practical lessons from Scripture about standing fast in the battle to honor life. Lesson one. Write these down if you have a pen. Decide to take risk. This lesson will actually help you in every area of your Christian life. If you look at the heroes of the faith, that great cloud of witnesses Brian talked about, they literally wrote the book on taking risk. You have Abraham, who left his homeland to inherit Canaan. Moses, who opposed Pharaoh because he knew that all the riches of Egypt couldn't compare with knowing Christ. Daniel, 
who prayed three times a day despite Nebuchadnezzar's threats against his life. Peter, when he dropped his nets in his whole livelihood to follow Jesus. And the list goes on. And it makes sense, doesn't it, that men of faith would be the original risk takers because the only way to show that you have faith, in other words, that you believe in the unseen, is to take risk. The real question is, from Luke 18.8, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Now, what sort of risk will you take in defending life? I can't say for sure. But any time you stand boldly for God, you risk losing relationships, personal success, reputation, and even safety. But our, our sister Can, Carol Canfield here, and, and I think even Pat Bruce, almost got run over by cars one time. I was very much afraid of losing my scholarship once when I called the local abortionist to repent for killing babies while I was in medical school. Thank God that didn't happen. Actually, most of my persecution has come in the form of ridicule from my peers. I'll never forget when I challenged the doctor's statements about legalization of abortion during a med school lecture. One of my classmates raised his hand, insulted me, and then laughed at me along with the rest of the class, including the doctor who was speaking. I'll be honest, I felt incredibly humiliated and lonely at that point. But how many of you know that Rich Mullins song, Elijah? Anybody in here heard that one? It's a good song. You should listen to it. My favorite line in that song goes something like, This life has shown me how we're wounded and how we're torn, how it's okay to be lonely as long as you're free. And I think of that every time one of these situations come up. It's okay to be lonely as long as you're free. Yes, I feel lonely at those times, but nothing frees a man from the bondage of sin in this world like placing his security, his reputation, his future, his life, his very life in the strong arms of Jesus Christ. It's okay to be lonely as long as you're free because whoever loses his life for Christ's sake will find it. Put your faith in Christ. Decide to take risks. Now, incidentally, on this business of risk-taking, you should take great encouragement from my story. Believe it or not, I am not by nature a risk-taker. You can tell this by my distaste for certain things. It's, it's always been this way. I love the beaten path. I love the tried and true. I, I, I don't like participating in team sports where other people are depending upon me. I don't like the business world. I'm terrified of the risk of you know, being a businessman. And medical research will forget that. I, I could no longer, no more work for two years on a project that might flop than I could jump to the moon. I hate risk. Okay? I appreciate the people in those fields, but I would much rather simply maintain the path that they've already beaten down. But you know, God is not limited by our natural weaknesses, is he? His, his strength overcomes my weakness, and it will do the same for you. Decide to take risks. Lesson two. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. Luke 16.10 Recently, one of my good Christian friends at school asked me if I really thought we as students had the authority to witness to patients since we represent the unbelieving physicians who are over us. He wondered if we shouldn't wait until we're in charge of the team caring for the patient. Now, I have tried to silence the Holy Spirit numerous times with the exact same reasoning, 
sometimes even stalling until the opportunity to share the truth has passed. And I'm ashamed of that. But remember Jesus' words. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. A conscience bound by the word of God and led by the Holy Spirit will not let you run away like that forever. God makes sure that each branch of the vine bears fruit, and if it doesn't, he prunes it. If you think that you'll wait until your reputation is established, until you have a little more authority, until people take you just a little more seriously, remember, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. You can't expect to use that reputation and authority once you get it if you haven't been willing to take risk as one of the peons. After all, when you're a peon, you risk losing very little, right? But the risk goes up steadily as you climb higher up the ladder. If you haven't exercised the faith needed to take little risks, what makes you think you'll ever take big risks? But again, I want to encourage you. Even if you've been unfaithful every time so far, it's not too late. Start taking those little steps of faith. Just step out there a little bit at a time. Seek God diligently and he will reward your efforts. He who is faithful in a little thing is faithful also in very much. Lesson three, embrace the fear and trembling. Don't get the impression that all this is easy, okay? It's easy for God, but I doubt it'll ever be easy for us. Of course, guys like David make it look easy to go up a fully armored, up against a fully armored Philistine giant, but rarely is it. Every time I stick my neck out on the line at the hospital or at school, it scares the living daylights out of me. But you know, lately, I've learned to embrace the fear. Why? Because we're commanded in the book of Philippians to what? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And Paul preached to the Corinthian church with what? Much fear and trembling. And Jesus tells us not to fear man, but to fear God. So you see, the object is not to extinguish the fear. It's to properly orient it heavenward. That's the point. Our fear is... It's supposed to be there, and it's supposed to be directed toward God. Recently, during a lecture I attended on brain death at the the school, I read from Genesis 9 to the speaker in a group of about 30 students. About five minutes before I spoke, my heart started pounding, leaping out of my chest. I felt all my extremities go ice cold as all the blood rushed to my vital organs, kind of like Brian just described. Maybe some of you have had that same experience. Rob, have you ever had that? See, Rob knows what I'm talking about. It happens to all of us. Fortunately, the Holy Spirit gave me the clarity of mind to remember, wait a minute, I I should praise God for this fear because I don't fear man, I fear God. A few minutes later, I spoke and praised God. It was one of those precious moments where he helped me to do the right thing. So don't let the fear and trembling silence you. Embrace it. We have this stupid notion, it's a very stupid notion in our society, that when it comes to truth, we have to sort of conduct ourselves like proper Brits, you know, emotionless, detached, civilized, and and above all, getting on well with others. Otherwise, we have a terrible witness, right? Hogwash. After one of the incidents I mentioned earlier, I remember a Christian friend of mine expressing concern 
that he could hear the emotion in my voice when I spoke. I said, good. I hope you did. I hope the day never comes when I can speak about the killing of unborn children with a purely flat intellectual tone. May that never, ever be. And you all have the freedom to shoot me if it happens. Actually, see if I've repented first. <laughs> and the, but, but my point is, don't swallow the popular lie that fear and trembling discredit your witness. Indeed, remember this. If you speak the word of God without fear and trembling, then be worried about your witness. I think I just said that wrong. If you speak the word of God without fear and trembling, then you should be concerned about your witness. Lesson four. This will be my last point, but it's important. Once you've made up your mind to defend innocent life, to honor life, you've committed yourself to taking risk and being faithful in little things, and you've decided not to let fear and trembling paralyze you, then whatever you do, please do not worry about what you will say. Jesus tells us in Matthew 10:19, Do not worry about how or what you should speak. For it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. It doesn't matter if you haven't memorized various population statistics or elaborate philosophical arguments or incriminating quotes by Margaret Sanger and Jack Kevorkian. Those things can sometimes be helpful, but in the heat of the moment, what you need to do is simply proclaim the truth of God. You don't need eloquence. You don't need apologetics. You need the truth, and you've already got it. Genesis 9-6 tells you why murder is wrong. That's it. That's all you need. We don't protect babies because they're cuddly and cute. We protect them because they're made in the image of God. Now, there are other helpful scriptures that you should learn, but start back in Genesis in the beginning. Keep it simple because the truth is simple. You know, we convince ourselves to remain silent because we think, well, unless we get our words just right, God's reputation will be harmed. But there are two problems with this excuse. One, it defies Jesus' promise that the Holy Spirit will guide us. And two, how much more will we dishonor God if we remain silent? I'll never forget John Franiati. God love him. Calling the parents of a girl with whom his brother had just had a really nasty breakup. He invited them to a church picnic, and he did it in the way only John can do it. No introduction, nothing. He just calls him on the phone. Uh, uh, hello? Um, you should come to the church picnic. Uh, okay, bye-bye. Click. So later, in telling one of the elders of this church about this sweet gesture, I, I commented how unfortunate it was that John didn't do it quite right, you know, since he, he failed to introduce himself on the phone. Well, the elder quickly set me straight, saying, no, he did it right because he did it. Do you understand? It doesn't matter what mistake he made. He called them, and that's what matters. And, of course, the elder was right. Did I actually think there was any doubt on the other end of the line that it was John calling? I mean, did I think they missed that somehow? <laughs> you know, my thinking was foolish, but it's really no worse than so many of the lame excuses we come up with with for silence. You know, even if you decide to speak and totally bomb out, all you can stammer out is what well, Jesus doesn't like that. 
Instead of beating your head against the wall later, trust God. Who cares if they think you're a fool? Who cares if you don't see fruit right away? Remember Paul on Mars Hill? A lot of people scoffed, and he didn't see any fruit right away. Yet think of the number of people who've been blessed, or maybe even the number of people who've been saved because of that sermon in which everyone thought he was crazy. Okay? No matter how, much you, how you speak the truth, you're going to sound foolish to some people. But God will use you, so trust Him. Now, I realize that between Brian and me, you've been given a lot to digest tonight, so I want to review. I want you to remember basically five things. One, if you love Jesus Christ, no matter what your profession, He expects you to defend innocent life. Number two, determine to put your faith in God and take risk. Three, he who is faithful in a very little thing is also faithful in much. Four, embrace the fear and trembling. Just make sure they're directed toward God and not man. Five, do not worry about what you will say. Simply study the scriptures and ask the Holy Spirit to guide you. I love you all, and may the Lord bless you as you seek to serve him and others. His will is your sanctification and he will be faithful. Amen.